This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. Well, howdy, Bridgeway, and good morning. Happy Sunday to you. I want to welcome those of you who are here, as well as those of you who are joining us online this morning. It is great to be together, and uh, I want to dive right into things this morning. And so if you got your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Esther chapter 2. If you were here last week, we kicked off this series looking at Esther, the God that remembers you. And I want to dive right in. As you're maybe finding your way to the book of Esther, it's in the Old Testament. It's kind of a smaller book, maybe a little harder to find. You can use the table of contents. That's totally allowed here. Uh, But as you're finding your way there, I wanted to give you just um, one point, kind of as a programming note. Uh, We are kind of changing things up with our order of service, just kind of as an experiment, kind of trying some different things. One of the things that we've wanted to do is, uh, as I just said, I I love the team that we have up here, and their hearts are entirely uh, just oriented towards serving you and preparing you for this time when we open up God's Word. And so what we wanted to try to do is to bring the music and the message closer together. And so, as you can tell, in this time there's no announcements. Um, We're actually going to do announcements at the very end of the service. So don't rush off after the last song. Pastor Mike's going to come back up, and he's going to kind of fill you in on things to know. And I just want to say that just because the announcements are at the end, it does not mean that they are unimportant. In fact, uh, we actually think that this might help because a lot of the stuff we give you in announcements are sort of things to take action on, kind of parting shots. And so we kind of think this might actually serve you and help you out. So, uh, and again, everything we do is an opportunity for worship here this morning. So that's kind of what we're doing. We'd love your feedback. If you like this new format, let us know and uh, we'll continue on in it. Um, Hey, as I said, diving into this book of Esther, and it's a very ambitious project. In fact, This book of Esther, for me, is all about kind of bridging this gap. What gap, you might be asking? Well, there's a couple gaps, but I think the main gap we're trying to bring is the one of 2,500 years. This book was written 2,500 years ago in your Bible. And the interesting thing is in Esther, there's a lot of very difficult, challenging cultural issues that are going on in Esther's time that, by no coincidence, is also what we face in our day and age today. And so as a pastor, I get a lot of questions. I get questions like, well, pastor, what do you think is going on in our world? And, you know, what's wrong with our world today? And why do things seem to kind of just be, you know, maybe like swirling down a toilet bowl? And I often find these as great questions and great opportunities to kind of inspect our faith and how we live in our world around us today. In fact, if you kind of ask me what I think about the world today, I'll probably ask you to think about these two questions. And I shared these questions with you last week, and they're this. Um, The first question is, how do you live in a godless society as a religious minority? I shared last week that the statistics are pretty clear. Christianity, especially in North America, has been declining for uh, a number of decades. That shouldn't surprise anyone. Uh, Church attendance, church involvement has been dropping off, not just since COVID, but for a long time. And it can leave you feeling like just a minority in a society that basically says, hey, whatever goes, right? I mean, if you want to worship Jesus, great. If you want to worship Muhammad, great. If you want to worship the Buddha, great. If you want to worship polka dot zebras, you know, that's fine too. And, and that's kind of the society. It's sort of an anything goes. So how do you live out your faith as a minority in that kind of society? And then maybe the harder question is how do you live out these very distinct Christian values that we have in a society that's in moral decline? 
How do you take the values that you care about, the things that have maybe oriented your life for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of your life, how do you take them, value them in a society that doesn't, and then pass them on to children and grandchildren and the like? This becomes very difficult. Cheery news this morning, right, Pastor? Thanks a lot for cheering us up. But how do we do that? And the bridge that we're going to see is that the Israelites... God's people, the Jews, they faced a very similar situation as well. And their problem is they had become so ingrained, so blended in with the culture around them, that they could not see the moral decline that they were a part of. And see, this is what's so interesting, is the Bible doesn't just tell us what happened, it tells us what always happens in a sin-saturated world. The Bible doesn't just give us History, the Bible actually tells us our future. And so this morning, what's the solution? Well, we looked last week that the solution is to find your purpose, to find the God-given purpose that he's given to you, and to live your life in that direction. To not settle, as we looked last week, at, at things that just seem to be the pursuit of pleasure or even the pursuit of self-protection, but to actually live for purpose. That was last week. You're welcome. Now, this week, I'm going to introduce you to Esther. You finally get to meet Esther, and what you're going to see is she's on a journey as well, a journey to find her purpose in life. And you're going to see that she has a few hurdles that she has to overcome in order to get at this God-designed, this destiny of purpose. And the first hurdle is, is none other than the king, King Xerxes, he is a very powerful man. We learned a lot about Xerxes last week. In fact, probably the main takeaway last week is the king loves to throw banquets. Uh, he's just thrown a six-month banquet where he invited all the military leaders and generals. He's about to go to war, so he needs leaders, so he invites all these generals, and he wines and he dines them for six months. After that, he follows it up with a separate banquet, seven-day banquet, and this is for all the peasants. Everyone else come to the king's palace it's an open bar, unrestrained drinking for seven days. He's trying to fill out his army. I don't know, it kind of reminds me maybe of an old movie long, long time ago called Animal House, kind of how Xerxes operates, kind of how he runs his kingdom. Tells us a little bit about him. Then he gets this bright idea. He says, hey, call me my wife. In fact, get Queen Vashti, get her all dolled up so I can parade her around in front of all my friends. And shocker of the story, Vashti actually has the most morals in this entire book. She says, no, I will not be paraded around in front of your, your buddies after seven days of Miller time. I won't do that. And so she says no, and that's the last we ever hear of her because the king is furious. And he consults his Supreme Court, which is kind of ironic. They're all drunk as well. And so they say to the king, king, you the man. You shouldn't be treated like that. Let's find you a new queen. This is literally in your Bible. And so we're going to read this morning about their plan to get the king a new queen. It's kind of a Miss Persia pageant. Hopefully you found Esther chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 2. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. 
This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. I, I bet he did, right? Kind of a disclaimer this morning. Uh, if you haven't already picked up by now, the Bible is not rated PG. <laughs> it's actually uh, rated R for real. And you're going to hear some things this morning that, that just might make you feel just a little bit uncomfortable. And I want you to kind of press into these because this is the world that was going on at the time. In fact, none of this should surprise us. King Xerxes is a man of ultimate power, absolute power, absolute power that has absolutely corrupted his reign and his kingdom. In fact, um, we read last week uh, his kingdom. I want to show you kind of on a map uh, what his kingdom looked like. This is uh, the Persian Empire in about 500 B.C. Uh, it stretches all the way, as the text says last week, from India, which would have been on the east, all the way, it says, to Kush, which is like northern Africa. It's essentially, it's essentially the entire known world at that time. He's conquered everything that's sort of known and on the map. And there on that yellow star, it's not Texas, that's actually the citadel. It's the capital, which is Susa. And if you were to look up Susa on a map today, it's very fascinating. It's, it's about where Baghdad is, so it's Iraq, Iranian border. Um, it's the place that's on the news all the time. It's a war-torn region. Uh, that war goes all the way back to these biblical times, actually even before Xerxes was king. And so again, you're getting kind of this history colliding uh, with this Bible lesson as well. And as I read this this morning, as I said, this should be a bit uncomfortable, this should make the reader cringe a little bit, right? I mean, you're reading about a harem of 127 provinces to choose from of women, young women, and they're being placed in this harem and they're under the charge of Haggai the eunuch, just kind of, I mentioned last week, the eunuchs, that's a, a message for a completely different day, but reading through and just studying Xerxes this week, he actually was so threatened by any other male taking over his throne, that he had 500 men castrated. Awkward, I know, it's just, and it's about to get more uncomfortable as we read, picking back up in verse 5. It says, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shammai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captain, captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. So now you meet Esther. And you learn a lot about her in just a few sentences. First of all, it says she's beautiful and lovely. And of course, that's no surprise. She wouldn't be invited to this Miss Persian pageant if she weren't. But she's also, we're told, raised by her cousin, Mordecai. And that her parents had died. We don't know exactly how her parents died, but she's been raised by her cousin, Mordecai. 
And so that means that she's an orphan, an orphan girl kind of caught up in this Persian empire and all that's going on. In fact, it's hard for her because we see that she's actually got two names. It says that her name was Hadashah, which is a Jewish name, but she goes by the name of Esther. That's a Persian or just a, a regular name in that day. This means that her nationality is she's 100% Jewish. And she's been told by Mordecai to not reveal her identity. Now, this is really interesting because if you're a Jew in that day, you could do really none of the things that Esther is about to do. You could never associate with a pagan king, right? You serve Yahweh. You serve one true God. Uh, You could never eat the king's food. You could never have a dinner at the king's palace because his food, by law, would have been strictly prohibited. Uh, Marriage would have been completely out of the question. You would have lived by the Mosaic law of marriage, and that would have been clearly outlined in the Bible, in the Torah, their Torah at that time. And so you have to kind of see what's going on here is Esther, too, has become kind of ingrained into her culture. I think, actually, Esther is, is hiding. She doesn't want anyone to know her real background, the fact that she's a Jew. And this is going to become really important as the story unfolds next week. Um, But let's read kind of what happens next. She's selected, and watch what happens next. Verse 12. It says, Before a young young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. Now let me just kind of pause here for a moment. She's about to go on her first date with King Xerxes. Anyone notice a little problem with this date? Like in the preparation of this date, 12 months of beauty treatments before the first date? I don't know. Am I the only one that just seems like maybe that's a little bit, you know, just a little bit over the top, maybe just kind of crazy to think 12 months before the first date? My wife and I actually celebrated uh, 28 years of marriage yesterday. And uh, I got to tell you, just, uh, yeah, you can clap for that. Awesome. Yeah. And clap for her, mainly, because that's an epic gift to me and an epic achievement for her to put up with me for all these years. But I remember our first date, and I'm so glad it wasn't a year of getting ready for that first date, right? I mean, it just seems a little ridiculous. Actually, doesn't it seem like that'd be a lot of pressure before your first date with the king? I mean, it's kind of silly, right? I mean, can you imagine a society that would make a show out of selecting a spouse, almost like a contest, where you would bring in a group of attractive young women, all to vie for the affections of one man? Oh, the rivalries, right? All the bickering until only one received a rose, right? I mean, how silly. What a silly way to pick a spouse. Aren't you glad that we have we have become so much more sophisticated in our world today, right? I make light of this, but actually for Esther and for these, I will say, poor young women, it would have been far worse than even a a television show today, right? I mean, you think of these young women, and they're being pulled from their home, they're being placed in a harem, they're, they're robbed of, you know, this opportunity to have a normal marriage and to have children on their own. In fact, the way the rules would work is if the king didn't like you, he didn't have to call you back. I mean, it could be over at that point. And what the author is giving us, this glimpse that no other book in the Bible gives you, is 
something about that culture that I think is important. And that's that this culture is just obsessed with appearance. I mean, think about it. All this beauty treatments, all this oil and myrrh, all for these girls, for a king that they hardly know. And I, I don't want to just rush past this point because I know it's easy to say, oh, that was back then. That was so silly how they lived. And while our systems are different today, I think it would be a mistake to gloss over this and to think that in some ways we don't also have a culture today that maybe isn't even more obsessed with appearance. I mean, things are different, but you go on social media and you have influencers, you have people, even people I look up to that what? They want to sell you everything with their brand so that they can brand you. And while maybe we don't go through beauty treatments, we certainly make sure that we select just the right filter for the pictures we take, and we carefully select the right pictures to curate and post online. I think it's important to just pause and just to say, you know, what's, what's my part in this culture that's obsessed with appearance? What are the ways in which that maybe that I allow appearance to kind of dominate what's important to me? And for what? For, for friends that we hardly know online who are also just posting their highlight reels? I think the pause here is just to see that we live in this world that worships what we look like. And the author is, is trying to not so subtly tell you that appearance isn't all that it's cracked up to be. In fact, what matters is your character and the choices that you begin to make in that character. Watch how the story wraps up, finishing up in verse 16. It says, and then she was taken to King Xerxes. So here's her one night, her first date. In the royal residence, in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head, and he made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with his royal liberality. Now you read through this part, and you just see, now we have it. We have a queen, a brand new queen. And I want to press you this morning to think about how this story makes you feel. I've done lots of reading. I could give you a lot more on historical context. I could give you what was going on politically and, and in other regions in that day. But I want to appeal to your feelings this morning. When you read this story, how do you feel about the characters? I mean, do you have any sense of anger that stirs up in you? Is there any sense of, like, injustice? Are you slightly annoyed? Are you tired of anyone already in this story? Or are your feelings more flat? You know, you're like, well, what's the big deal? You know, it's kind of a story, and it's based in that time and place, and maybe you just kind of read through it, and there's not a lot of feeling and emotion. I think we read through the story, and I think if I read this through kind of the context of today, this story is everything that we would be against today, right? I mean, the king certainly has his power, right, and his struggles. And while it's not the same, I think it certainly rivals the actions of the evil of the pornography industry today, just objectifying and doing nothing to solve the world's problems. The king is in that same trap. There's this whole issue of these young women being placed in a harem. I think it's borderline, but maybe even 
crosses the border of today, issues with child trafficking. I read this story, and at the bare minimum, you see kind of this power structure of, of one man and over all these women. And I just think if you see this happening today, I mean, these are the sort of things where movements get started and people get canceled for good reason, right? I mean, there's something in this story that just makes you question what is going on? What is wrong with the world today as it was back And with the king, I, I think in many ways, we sort of read this story and we're like, well, that's what the king is. You know, he's not surprising us. That's who he is and that's what he does. So let me press you a little deeper. How do you feel this morning about Esther, this great woman in your Bible, Right? How do you feel about her actions? I mean, just let's be honest for a moment. What's a nice Jewish girl like you doing in a place like this? And you hear the story and you think, wow, I mean, Esther, really? I mean, I know in the Bible we have many women who are heroes of the faith. Many, many. But there's only really two books that feature women, Ruth and Esther. And I, I meet so many people that love those books. And, and many that say that Esther, you know, Esther is their favorite. Esther has their life verse in mind. And she does, but, but not yet. In fact, I want you to stay in this tension of who Esther is in this moment. I mean, you think about her, and she joins a harem. She falls into the cultural trap of idolizing appearance and beauty treatments. She spends one night, she sleeps with the king. It was fascinating. I, I read through so many commentaries this week. In fact, I, I tried to read commentaries that were written mostly by women this week because I didn't want to misunderstand this story. I didn't want to have any, uh, any lenses on this story. And uh, so many of them were so profound in what they said. And in fact, one commentator, one female commentator said, you know, if you're a feminist, and by feminist, I mean you, you desire equal white rights. If you're a feminist, you, you cannot respect Esther. I mean, you, you cannot. She's too compliant, right? I mean, she just does whatever the king says. She does whatever her cousin Mordecai tells her to do. And if you're more conservative in your views, it doesn't matter. You still have a hard time respecting Esther. I mean, she's completely voiceless. I mean, she never once raises her voice. She never says what she believes. She's not even willing to say what her background, her nationality is. And many commentators would contrast this with what happened in that same time and age with Daniel, or more accurately, Daniel and his three friends. You remember Daniel's three friends? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they get captured by a different empire, the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is this other man of great power and says, you must bow before me, before my statue, actually. And these three men say, we will not bow before you. And even if you throw us into the fiery furnace, we will not we will not worship you. And sure enough, they're thrown in the fiery furnace and they're saved. And here in this story, the commentators ask, well, why? why? This has only been just a few generations since these young men. And again, we see it's Esther having blended in with the culture. Some people will give Esther a pass and say, well, she had no choice. And oftentimes, she kind of gets described as someone that just lived in a time of Moral ambiguity, you know, kind of anything goes. It was right in her day. She had no choice. And that's why as I read through this week, I wanted to make sure that we knew in our day and age today, as was in Esther's, we always have a choice. 
we always have a choice to honor God. Next slide. To honor God with our lives and with our actions. We even saw this last week with Vashti. She had a choice to make, and she made a choice to not go before the king, and it was a choice that set her life on a very different direction. We never hear from her again, but it's a choice. And in the gray areas that we face in our own human free will, there is always a choice. You know, I love this time of year. Uh, I love summer. Summer's like my favorite season. It's the only season I like in Michigan. And, and yet, I come to the end of summer, and there's a part of me that gets excited because I know for many people, summer is sort of a, a break from faith and a break from church and oftentimes back to school. Kids, I know, you got to go back to school tomorrow, right? Or, yeah, tomorrow. And back to school is oftentimes kind of a back to church, a back to faith. And, and I just want to say to you this morning, whether you're a student or a teacher or someone working or working from home, that there's a lot of choices that people face this time of year. I, I feel like the fall time kind of ushers in all these choices that families have to make. How do we honor God in our family? We've got students going off to college, and college students have to make, oh man, I think of my college days, all the choices, the ones I got right and the many, many I got wrong, and yet there was always an opportunity to honor God with those choices. Maybe for you, maybe tomorrow is going back to work, and you'll have to make choices there. Do I honor my boss, the king, or do I honor God with the way I carry out my business. There's Friday nights and tailgating and everything that comes with this time of year, and with it is an opportunity to honor God. There's no stretch as we read through this story to see that Esther does not get off to a good start. She's hard to make an example of from a moral perspective, but the story for Esther is far from over. She's going to go from this woman that you meet here today who's too compliant too voiceless, too morally ambiguous, you're going to see her become braveheart. She's going to become this woman of courage and bravery. Her story is far from over, and neither is yours. I said last week that the hero of the story is God. It's always God. And there's always an opportunity to honor God in our choices. And that's the good news for us. No matter how you started, no matter what you've done, you can always write yourself into the final chapters, the next chapters of God's book. But I want to close with this. My, my favorite part of this entire story is how the chapter ends. Do you notice how the king does what the king does? He throws another party. This is the fourth banquet, if you're keeping track, in two chapters. And I love this because it says that the king throws a party, and it's Esther's banquet. But if we're honest, we all can see right through this, right? This is just the king having another opportunity to parade around his trophy wife. But what I love about this is the author here is telling us there's a banquet, and this is the foreshadowing of the banquet that we can all take part in, the banquet of the faithful. And isn't this just like God? To take a banquet that the king just disrespects and to give us a way to redeem the banquet, a God that remembers you despite your choices or anything you've done or your lack of faith, God in his mercy calls to you. And there's no need for beauty treatments because this king invites you to his banquet. And that brings us to a time of communion, and the worship team is going to come and join me on stage. And this is a time when we remember the grace of God. I hope this never grows old to us here at Bridgeway. God's grace, his love, his mercies are new every morning, and all are welcome. You don't have to win the king's heart because you already have. He's created you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made in him. And this time of communion is really remembering what Jesus did for us 
on the cross. We actually get a picture of both banquets, the banquet that Jesus gave for his disciples at the Last Supper, where he broke bread. He said, take and eat. This bread represents my body. And then after the supper, he said, take and drink. This wine represents the blood of my new covenant for the forgiveness of all of your sins. And this is a foreshadowing to the heavenly banquet that you'll take part in in eternity. And so today we get to celebrate that. And as Charles and the team leads us, I just want to give you a few moments to, to just, as the scriptures say, to examine your heart. And then when you're ready, you can come to the tables. There are two in the front and there are two in the back of the room. And you will find on them the communion elements. You can take these back to your seat. And when you're ready, you can peel them apart and take of the elements. And then we would invite you to stand and to sing to us. Tables are ready, and so if you would bow your head, I want to pray for us this morning. God, as I just think about this story, I just think about how full my heart is in all that you've done. How you throw this banquet for us now, and it's preparing us for the life and eternity that we can spend with you. The heavenly banquet that we're all invited to. Just the amazing invitation that you offered each one of us to be at your table, despite what we've done or what we haven't done, you invite us to be your sons and your daughters, sons and daughters of the King. God, I pray that you would just work and prepare in our hearts the ways in which you're calling us to live and to move and to have our being in the world around us today, Lord. I pray that we would leave here today inspired to live out the lives that you've given us with purpose and with meaning to follow after you. It's in your name that we pray. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide.